and welcome to the Energy Strong podcast presented by SPL. I'm Patrick Schauer, joined again by Director of ESG for SPL, Andrew Parker. Andrew, how's it going? I'm good, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing great. And also joining us again is the founder of Bright Sky Environmental, Kat Galloway. Kat, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Looking forward to talking with Chris today. So am I. So am I. Uh, as you mentioned there, Kat, our guest today is Chris Wright from Liberty Oilfield Services. I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation talking with him about all things to do with energy and energy access and things that Liberty is doing right now to try and make themselves one of the leaders in the industry, both in terms of providing high-quality services, but also in terms of reducing their environmental impact as much as possible. We will be right back to the Energy Strong podcast, but today's episode is brought to us by Bulwark FR. For over 50 years, Bulwark has served as the relentless protector of those who power the world. In that time, they have pioneered every breakthrough in flame-resistant apparel and tirelessly championed the workers of oil, gas, and electric utilities. Bulwark doesn't just make FR, they are FR. And now with their newfound freedom, they get to do it in a bigger, better, and bolder way. Learn more at www.bulwark.com. That's www.bulwark.com. And now, back to the show. Okay, well, I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Chris Wright is the CEO and chairman of the board for Liberty Oilfield Services, as well as being the founder of Liberty Resources and Liberty Midstream Solutions. So he's been really active in the industry recently. But I'm really excited because Chris is one of these guys who just has a lifelong passion for energy and its role in human improvement and human development, and, and he has a lot of great stories to tell about this. Chris is a engineer. He has a degree from MIT, has done graduate work in electrical engineering both at MIT and UC Berkeley. He's worked in all kinds of the energy industry, has worked in nuclear technologies as well as working in some of the uh, the foundational technologies that helped kickstart the shale revolution here in the U.S. Chris has been all over this industry and, and has a lot of interesting stories to tell. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Um, just to kind of get it started for our, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Liberty um, so that we can understand um, where you're coming from and, and what your company is doing. We started the company about 10 years ago, you know, with the idea just to build a different kind of business, lower turnover, longer tenured people, a drive to innovate technologies and, and push the shale revolution further. So I say we're a bunch of highly competitive tech nerds that love the oil and gas business and uh, our crews in the field, yeah, work on a little bit of a different schedule and, and the performance. The real business, of course, is in the field. It's not where I am in the, in the office in Denver, but on-site operations, that's where liberty happens. That where the, that's where the magic is. And Chris, can you tell us a little bit for, for some of our listeners here, the, the audience we have on this podcast isn't always people that are super familiar with the industry and, and the things that we do on a technical basis. Can you explain a little bit about the hydraulic fracturing process and maybe something that Liberty is doing to differentiate yourself from typical OFS companies? You bet. Well, with the shale revolution, instead of drilling down where there's oil and gas that can easily just flow out into a wellbore, 
We're drilling into shale, you know, almost a nearly impermeable rock. Think a kitchen counter rock. So you drill down, say, two miles, two miles long horizontal section in that rock. And then we successively pump fluid and sand, mostly water, at high pressure to create these conductive fractures that allow oil or gas or the combination of the two to flow along these cracks in the rock back to these horizontal well, well bores. And ultimately, we create hundreds of these hydraulic fractures along that well bore that allows commercial production of oil and natural gas in those fractures. So we're bringing out to location about 50,000 horsepower. That's similar to the jet engine of a 747 plane. At Liberty, we've developed a technology to silence those engines. So they're called quiet fleets. We could have this same dialogue standing right next to one of those engines. Um, and we've done a number of other things to try to both minimize the environmental impacts by knocking down noise and sound and trying to route truck traffic better. And then we have from, from our very first job, we have satellite dishes on top that send that data from wherever we're fracking back to our headquarters and to our customers' offices or wherever that data is needed in real time so we can execute the best possible hydraulic fracture treatments. Well, one of the things that 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 I've seen is that um, a lot of times when we say the word hydraulic fracturing, right, um, those of us in the industry are familiar with it and are comfortable with it. But I feel like for for a minority of the population, whenever they hear the word fracturing, um, they have a, a guttural reaction to that concept. How do we as an industry reach out to those who have a fundamental fear environmentally of the concept of fracturing. We do have that struggle. It's, I think when something is new and different and it happens underground and you can't see it, it's easy to scare people about it. And our opponents have been very successful at doing that. So a lot of what we have done is brought people on location. Politicians or activists that are against our industry, we bring them out to meet the humans on location to see what's actually happening. Our industry made a mistake early on when they wouldn't, weren't going to disclose the frac fluids. It was a thing to, to make it public and people said, no, it's trade secrets. That's just nuts. You want to get people to be comfortable with what you're doing, but you won't tell them what you're pumping underground. So look, we, we've been our own worst enemy in some cases, but you know, look, you can go to Frack Focus and find on every frack job in the United States exactly what was pumped underground on that day. In Colorado, there's been a whole network built by Colorado State University to monitor the surface water quality throughout the DJ basin where fracturing is happening. So that if anything was coming up or getting into groundwater or threatening people, you know, there are sensors around to monitor it. So I think that data, that monitoring, that openness to share everything we're doing. Um, my original company, we had technologies to measure the growth of these fractures underground. So, you know, on average, they're down at about 10,000 feet underground. The, these fractures may grow up to 9,500 feet or 9,400 feet. So they'll grow up. But there's almost always more than a mile of virtually impermeable rock between the top of that fracture and where the surface is. So understand people's concerns. In fact, some of my early work in fracturing was for waste disposal. In fact, Greenpeace had worked with the oil and gas industry instead of taking drill cuttings 
off the north slope of Alaska or from an offshore platform and disposing them near the surface, hey, the safest thing to do is to inject them deep underground and, and you know, and isolated from where people live on the surface. So that was just getting going as a great way to do waste disposal where everything got flipped on its head and, uh, and, and environmental groups to sort of oppose the growth of oil and gas developed a very large scare about hydraulic fracturing. I, I know for certainly the regulators um, and people that are looking at this closely, the comfort factor of its safety is extremely high. But, you know, you go to Paris, France, and they've seen they've seen gas land. And so that fear is there for people that have not been properly engaged. And that's up to us. Chris, you've been such a vocal advocate for the industry. And thank you for that. I think your advocacy and and your passion for the industry goes deeper than just being the CEO of Liberty. So maybe, I know you have a lot of experiences, maybe share some of the reasons why you're so passionate about the industry and so such a vocal proponent of it. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's a too long of a story, but you know, I grew up here in Denver, Colorado. Um, uh, the first time I ever, you know, really thought about energy was I was downtown. I was about 12 years old and I encountered a homeless person for the first time in my life. I knew nothing about substance abuse or mental illness. I just couldn't believe in the United States, we had someone without a roof over his head and without food to eat. And from that day, my passion has been, you know, I was born middle-class, you know, I've had this lucky life, but a lot of people aren't. And why is that? What is it that's holding them back from having these lives? So I, I've traveled to 55 countries. I've spent a lot of time in ghettos. I've hitchhiked up and down the cities of the East Coast and backpacked through rural Africa, uh, Caribbean countries, South America, and a little bit in South Asia. And, um, um, and I think two things dominate that situation. One is access to energy. Um, and the other is sort of secure property rights or you know, bottom-up social organization, the ability to control their own destinies. So to me, the growth of human liberty and the arrival of fossil fuels, all of which really happened at meaningful scale in the last 200 years, just changed the human condition. We went from 30 years or so life expectancy throughout all of human history to 72 years today, global life expectancy. And both of those things matter. So property rights, human liberty, hence the name of our company, and then the access to a better fuel source than just burning wood or dung or grass. That's the, that's the energy source for humans throughout all of history. You can't build a skyscraper or fly an airplane burning wood. You can't manufacture an iPhone or do a, or do a podcast burning wood. I heard you before the Energy Strong golf tournament a month or two ago. You said a few words to the, the golfers before they went out. And one of those comments you made was about you had just finished an article with Forbes and that the uh, person interviewing you for that article said you were the first executive uh, C-suite person that was willing to talk about energy advocacy. And I'm just curious why more more people in your position don't get out there and get vocal about uh, advocating for, for responsible energy development in U.S. energy. But thank God for energy strong. That's, that's what I can say. There. It's so critical. Look, when I was in high school, 
So that, you know, that's 40 years ago or whatever. When I was in high school, we knew that people in the oil and gas industry were the bad guys. There was the TV show Dallas. They were the evil, greedy, you know, double dealing people in that industry. And when I was young, the mania was we were running out of oil and gas and that was going to be catastrophic. That's, I specifically went to MIT to work on fusion energy, you know, and then solar energy in graduate school and geothermal energy afterwards, because the world needs energy to live better, happier, safer, more opportunity rich lives. And if we're running out of oil and gas, it's got to be something else. Now, it turns out it's extremely hard, extremely hard and likely will not happen in our lifetimes that will have a source that will take over as the dominant source of energy from oil and gas. That, that, that's going to happen someday, but that, you know, that's many decades, perhaps centuries away. So our industry, I think, being already demonized, sort of decided 50 years ago, keep your head down, get your permits, do things right, and just don't engage in that public discussion. And that, maybe that sort of worked. But now, recently, this very active effort to demonize, try to shut down our industry, we simply weren't prepared for that. And, and our reaction has been the same as it was before, kind of keep our heads down, do the right thing, um, but don't engage in those arguments, don't anger those people. And to me, that's just absolutely wrong. We need to go and be 100% honest, the good, the bad, and the ugly about what we do. I do that in university campuses and high schools. I will tell you, it's incredibly effective. Nothing is perfect. Everything's got a downside. We probably cause a dime's worth of externality damage, and that's real, but we create a dollar's worth of externality positives beyond just the person that's using the product right now. Making a, a society that has modern medicine, that people can fly around the world, that people have plastics and all sorts of material, we have communication technologies. Um, all of these things are impossible without oil and gas. It's the perfect segue to my next question because I've been to a number of events in the last few months and the rallying cry has been, we have to take back the narrative. But very few people are willing to offer up ideas and solutions for how to do that. How do you extend that olive branch to a group that just doesn't want to listen? How do you get people to, to pay attention to what we're doing, all the great things you just said, where do we go from here? How do we take back the narrative? Oh, man, I get, look, I don't know if I've got a good answer. Obviously, I've been struggling with that for a long time. But I, my, my advice is engage everyone. Every time I hear someone say a negative thing about oil and gas or they ask what I do, whether it's on a chairlift or a checkout shopping lane, just talk with people. You know, they have no idea. They're walking out of the grocery store. They have no idea those bags are made out of plastics. All the food packaging is made out of oil and gas. Their clothes are made out of oil and gas. They're not driving a car. They're riding a bike. Well, their bike tires are made out of oil and gas. And all the metals that, that allowed the manufacturing of that bike were not possible without oil and gas. And then I think people start to think about it. You know, that, that wow, if they really were going to forego oil and gas, it isn't just, you know, they have an electric powered car. I live to tell everyone there's a thousand pounds of oil and gas in every Tesla. Um, so I think it's in, engage people about where things come from and maybe what the world is like for the people that still live without oil and gas. You know, you, we, we can't build a wind turbine or a solar panel or a nuclear power plant or a dam without oil and gas. You know, when people understand these are these magical things that have enabled kind of everything else you like in life. Um, 
But they don't know that. And of, co- and of course, maybe the bigger issue today is this fear of climate change. Well, that may be a lot of good stuff and that got us here, but now it's destroying the planet. My kids aren't going to have a future. And look at all these people dying in extreme weather. Um, so that I think it's critical to be able to engage um, at whatever level necessary in the climate discussion. And look, I've been, I've been lucky there. I've been speaking on climate change for 15 years. So I wrote, we wrote that Bettering Human Lives report so that everyone in our industry could spend maybe a couple hours reading. And if you read that report, you know more about climate change than way over 99% of Americans. And then I, I think that's to enable people to, to talk about climate change in a way that's very different from politicians or activists or the media. Talk to those people. They know nothing about climate change. It's so sad. But manias where everyone believes something just because everyone else believes it, they spin out of control. This has happened before climate change and before the anti-fossil fuel movement in so many different ways. But I think the only answer to irrational fear is rational but emotionally in tune um, response to it. So, Chris, we'll we'll provide a link to that report um, for our listeners so that that our listeners can educate themselves a little bit more too, but can you give just a high level kind of cliff notes version of that discussion of, of climate change so that we can try and educate some, some people here as well from, from your understanding of the topic? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So like the kernel of it is, is well, it's hundred percent true. So humans have driven now coming up on just about a 50% increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide. That does lead to a modest warming of the planet. How much, we don't know exactly, but uh, without feedback effects, it's a little more than one degree Celsius, sort of a modest warming. We've had about three quarters or so of that already. Um, it's, it's exponential, so it should happen fast at first, and then every incremental molecule of CO2 will have less impact than the ones before it, because the logarithmic dependence. So that's continuing to go on. The planet is getting modestly warmer. Um, the impacts of that... Uh, today, the, the positives are probably about equal to the negatives. I think that's what the economists at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change studying it say. And if we continue the trajectory we're on, by the end of this century, we may have another one degree C warming of the planet. Think of what one degree centigrade is, so one and a little more than one and a half degree Fahrenheit. Um, and their analysis, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change analysis, is that at the end of this century, it may make humanity of order 1% or, you know, it's a wide range from 0.2% to maybe 2% or so, but that's, that's less than one recession between now and the year 2100. Um, so in the science and the data in it points to nothing that's a crisis. And in a more energized society, your risk of dying today from extreme weather has actually declined about 98% over the last 100 years. So as it's become much safer to live on planet Earth, unfortunately, we have maybe the highest anxiety or fear among children that they're going to die in a bad storm. So, you know, there's sort of the hype and then there's the reality. These are real issues that we need to be in discussed or engaged, but the truth is nowhere near as scary as you hear on a daily basis. And again, the messaging, Chris, is just so difficult when yesterday you have a bunch of 
oil majors on Capitol Hill getting grilled about withholding information or misleading the public on climate change science. Now, I don't know if that did or didn't happen. I'm not going to go one way or another. But I mean, you just said it. it. Climate change is happening. We know CO2 is a greenhouse gas. There are no secrets. There are no secrets. But but the uh, emotional argument that people want to make around climate change is really hard to beat with a rational set of data like you were just talking about. And, um, you know, I'd love to, to, I know you've done a lot of work with Steve Coonan and his book was fantastic. And in particular, his chapter on climate models was, I thought, really powerful. So, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, some, of, some of the conversations you've had with him around the, the climate model world and, and where some of the, the catastrophists get their, their uh, talking points from. Yeah, Andrew, great point. And Steve Coonan, whose great book, Unsettled, by the way, yeah, came out maybe four or five months ago. And what he talks about, so he's a, he, he went to college to work on physics, the same thing I did. We started our careers the same way. He, by, he, he went one direction, became a professor at Caltech, then provost of Caltech, then chief scientist at BP in their Beyond Petroleum campaign, trying to see how we can replace the energy we get from oil and gas from other things. So he spent a lot of time on alternative energy sources. I spent a little time at the start of my career. He spent many years. And then he was undersecretary for science uh, in the Obama Department of Energy. So this guy, physicist by background, no connection to our industry, trying to look at alternative energy sources and understand climate change. And came to the same conclusion I would say myself and so many other that look at it come to, is of course it's a very, it's a real phenomenon. It's very fascinating, the science behind it. Then there's these complex models that try to say, if we change the atmospheric concentration as we are, what is, how do you play those changes through going forward? And look, weather is a nonlinear chaotic system. So that's hard to do. So lots of models are made that show, you know, and they all show different impacts, modest warming, more, more significant warming. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change runs a whole bunch of these models and then the, they basically average them. It's, it's actually not very scientific what's done behind the scenes. And most importantly in these models is the radiation physics says very modest warming. If that's all that happened, it would be no big deal. So the, the premise of the fear is that, well, a little bit of warming from CO2 makes a warmer world, which necessarily means a wetter world. So if, when you evaporate water, if it stays in the atmosphere, water is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. So if we increase the water vapor in the atmosphere for a long period of time, that could make this one degree of warming or five. So ultimately, the climate question comes down to clouds. How do clouds form? How much longer is this water vapor resident? Um, but the models that are run, these sophisticated, fancy computer models, those blocks are 100 kilometers on a side. So think of a 60 square mile. You could put Denver, Fort Collins, Aurora all into one 
element in the climate models, right? And so you can't model a cloud when, you're, when your smallest element in your model is 60 miles long. So there's just basically a factor, a fudge factor for clouds. So what, how you decide clouds form or don't form, that's the whole answer. You get this complicated model, but it really just comes down to what you assume about clouds. Well, there's also a really good conversation in the book about model tuning and the opportunity for bias to enter that, uh, where you basically take a model, you look at the result, and then you tweak it, right? And um, that was also a really powerful piece of that that book that I, I thought. I have a PhD in climate, and it's, it's always a passion of mine because, like you said earlier, it's a conversation that's completely out of hand and out of context in most uh, most public forums. And um, I just thought Steve's book really does a nice, unbiased, uh, takes an unbiased approach at presenting that conversation around climate and climate change. And the reality is a lot of oil and gas companies fund that research, right? Like a lot of geology, atmospheric science departments at universities around the country actually have, you know, they take money from oil majors and um, there's a lot, there's a lot more to the conversation that just doesn't make it out into the public domain. And it's, it's unfortunate. Oh, I agree, Andrew. No energy company should, should have any desire whatsoever to hide anything about climate change. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. The best thing in the world for the oil and gas industry is for everyone in decision-making, everyone in the country to understand what we know about climate change. Because the more you understand the trade-offs, it's a real thing. It's a slow-moving, relatively modest impact on the planet today compared to energy poverty, compared to malnutrition, lack of access to water, gender equity, education. There's just massively larger issues on the planet today. But they are getting, they are getting sidebarred because of all this focus on climate change. And if, and if what we really knew about climate change, what the real debates were going on about climate change, if everyone knew that, they'd all just take a little breath and be a little easier. So the, as I've tried to do in that report, the more the public knows about the climate change, the better for the oil and gas industry, where the political narrative is trying to say the opposite. We're trying to hide it. But of course, what's happening today is it's being hid. What you hear from politicians, what you hear from the media, it's easy to scare people and it's powerful to scare people. And so we have a scaremonger industry out there because it makes it makes news. It, it justifies political power. It drives research dollars. You know, if you can scare people, you can make stuff happen. But you have to misrepresent climate change to scare people. Well, I, I think climate change is definitely a sexy topic, right? I mean, it is scary and it's it's hot out there. Um, I, on the other hand, don't necessarily think that climate change is the most important issue, right? I mean, I think it's, if, if we pivot a little bit, um, we know from a health studies perspective that there is a significant human health risk associated with particle pollution. Particle pollution comes from burning um, to not fully combustion, right? Um, having byproducts of burning some of these older um, forms of energy, such as wood and dung, that the majority of our global population is still exposed to um, cooking in their homes. So from, from that perspective, I see natural gas as a big problem solver for those health effects that people are absolutely exposed to. What's your position on that? Oh, right, right, right on. 
Yeah, about a third of humanity. So two and a half billion people every day cook their daily meal, burning wood, dung, agricultural waste, a small amount of them lump coal inside their huts. So Kat, as you just said, the World Health Organization's estimate of that is it kills between two and three million people a year, every year. Last year, the year before, the 30 years before that, and, and are going to die from that next year. We'll lose two to three million people from indoor particulate matter next year for the simple reason that they don't have access to hydrocarbons. The graduation fuel from burning wood or dung inside your, inside your hut or home is to burn liquid petroleum gas, propane. It's not as much natural gas at first because the infrastructure, the pipeline network's not there. But propane, you know, you, is carried on ships. The U.S. is by far the biggest exporter of it. It's sold in little canisters and like cooking stoves. Think of, think of your camping stove or your backpacking stove. That's exactly what the world needs more than anything else. And about 100 million people, hopefully this year, will graduate to burning liquid petroleum gas. That not only dramatically reduces the health risks, because you've got cleaner indoor air now, but in traditional societies, women spend, women do all the manual labor in traditional societies. That's embarrassing for us men, but it is the truth. I've seen it throughout my whole life. Women spend over an hour a day gathering fuel wood every day to keep to cook family meals. You bring propane, liquid petroleum gas to that village. Um, you got clean kicking, cooking fuels. You just change the game. So right, the problem today with fossil fuels is not too much. It's lack of access of fossil fuels for that one third of humanity that still live the way our ancestors did or, or their lives are still powered the way our ancestors did. That, that one is truly a crisis and obviously a massively more urgent and humanitarian problem than climate change is today. It's a short term problem. Climate change is a slow moving long term problem. As ESG continues to permeate into the oil and gas world and companies feel increased pressure to uh, limit their emissions and do good by the environment, obviously Liberty is already ahead of the curve with your E-Fleet. What do you think is going to be some of the, the biggest innovations we see in the next decade in the oil and gas industry with respect to sustainability? If, if we build additional export capacity for liquefied natural gas, we wouldn't have the thousands of people that will starve this year in India. Natural, there's just a shortage of infrastructure. Global natural gas prices today are five times higher than they were last year. Natural gas is the main ingredient of making nitrogen fertilizer, which is one of the huge cost components of food. A shortage of energy infrastructure has spiked the price of food. Watch the next six months, what's gonna to happen to grain prices. They've already gone up significantly. They're gonna go up meaningfully more. That will kill thousands, thousands of people. Thousands more will freeze to death this winter because they can't afford the heating fuel. That could, that's going to be in England and Europe, as well as in China and India. So the most urgent thing is to continue to politically engage and build the infrastructure and the capacity to prevent these catastrophes from happening. So the view is we need to produce less, apologize for what we're doing, and show our plan to get out of the industry. That's just wrong. 
That's not the way to make human lives better. That's not the way to make the world a better place. We need to grow U.S. production, lift that last third of humanity in, out of energy poverty. Now, along the way, it's great when something is produced in the United States, it's produced much cleaner than it's produced on average overseas. Uh, there was a recent study on methane leaks because methane is a more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. When you produce oil and natural gas in the United States, there's less, there's three times less methane leaked than the rest of the world. So when you shut down drilling on federal lands and that incremental production is not here, it goes overseas, you're going to get three times the methane leakage associated with that production than if it was done in the United States. So if you want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you want more oil and gas production in the United States, not less. So now back to, back to your point, Andrew, the biggest target in our industry right now um, is methane leaks and reducing gas flaring. So that's also a build infrastructure thing. Build infrastructure so we can gather that methane, get it into a trunk line, send it somewhere so it makes someone's life better as opposed to building at a well site. And in our particular world, yes, we're building new frac fleets that are going to burn 100% natural gas instead of 100% diesel or a mix of diesel and natural gas. That lowers greenhouse gas emissions. And for us, it's not just burning methane gas, but it's burning in the cleanest way possible. Most of the electric frac fleets today are turbine driven. They're just not well suited for the small scale of frac and the intermittent load. So they have higher methane seep is the technical term for methane leakage and lower thermal efficiency, meaning it takes more methane to execute the frac treatment than it's burning in a gas reciprocating engine. So we've been working with both Caterpillar and Rolls-Royce, their MTU unit, to drive uh, reciprocating gas engines that have very high thermal efficiency, very low methane leakage. But yeah, Liberty's very proud to bring out frac fleets next year that'll have meaningfully lower greenhouse gas emissions than any fleet on the market today. So I'm not against do, doing uh, reducing our 10 cents of damage. Absolutely. We are passionate about that. We should do that. But we should never get boxed into only talking about that 10 cents of damage and not talking about how to grow that dollar of benefit. Yeah, I probably didn't answer that. I didn't ask that question probably the way I should have, but you answered it perfectly right, which is nowhere in the world do you get oil and gas produced any cleaner than it is in the United States. And and the industry is going to continue to work to limit those emissions, but we should be incentivized as an industry to produce more in the United States as much as we can. They should enable us because it's far better than getting it from Saudi or Iran or Venezuela or other parts of the world where it is produced with pretty much no regard for the environment whatsoever. Andrew, right on. And look, and my, my only small edit there was I don't want to be incentivized. I don't want subsidies. I, I, I don't like those. I'm a libertarian. I'm a free market guy. That's what made the world a better place. We just, but what I, but I know you're saying the same thing, but what we don't want is obstacles. The goal right now of, of too much in power is to increase the obstacles to production of oil and gas in this country. Again, thinking that's a good thing. That's going to address climate change. That's going to make us cleaner. No, the bigger the obstacles are, incrementally, there's just going to be less production here because it's more expensive. That's going to make the world dirtier, not cleaner. So why are we driving policies to make the world dirtier and poorer? Like that just doesn't make any sense at all.
And, and, and on that, to people listening, they say, well, we're getting rid of fossil fuels. We're transitioning anyway. So why, why, why don't we just speed up that transition? Well, the, here's the quick numbers on that. 86.1% of global energy came from fossil fuels in the year 2000. So 20 years ago, almost a generation ago, 86.1% became 84.3% in the year 2020. So 1.8% reduction in market share over 20 years. So if we continued at that rate, it says the energy transition will take a little less than a thousand years. Um, but the other thing you got to realize is that first 2%, that's the low-hanging fruit. That's the electricity sector in wealthy nations. Everything you hear about wind and solar, you know, bio, that's electricity sector in wealthy nations. Globally, electricity is 20% of world energy. What are you going to do about the other 80%? How are we going to make cement and steel and plastics, cooking fuel, industrial progress? How are we going to fly an airplane or, or a ship? So the, the biggest problem with the energy dialogue today is just, it's just riddled with naivete um, and marketing and not an honest assessment of the facts. I'm all for new energy and technologies, but there's virtually no scenario, no scenario where oil and gas and coal, although coal's market share has peaked, but, but together oil, gas and coal they will be by far and away the largest sources of energy 30 years from now. I knew everyone wants that not to be true. Look, I spent five or seven years of my life trying to make that not true, but that's just not going to happen. It's just math. It's just physics. Well, I guess my, my final question for you, Chris, um, coming into the holiday season, uh, how many North Face jackets are going to be under your tree? <laughs> <laughs> I love North Face gear. I have a ton of North Face gear. My wife and I are mountain climbers and outdoor people. So yes, it was hard to take and I was not able, did not want to be quiet when they crossed that bridge and wanted to shun our industry. Look again, and it's not just the, the arrogance and the hypocrisy of it, but it's that misinforming people that to be good today, you should be against oil and gas. The young of today, you know, that's what they hear. That was the worst crime of the North Face campaign, sending that message that you young outdoor people should oppose oil and gas. And if you oppose oil and gas, you're opposing that two and a half billion people that want to have clean cooking fuels, that want to have longer, safer, healthier lives. Like that's, that's immoral to stand in the way of those people. So to see a wealthy American corporation waving a flag that's driving people that direction, um, yeah, I guess you could say it set me off. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I, I know that you're you're a busy man and and you need to get back to your day here. We really enjoyed the conversation here today and uh, I, know, I know we could keep going on this for, for another hour if we wanted to. Again, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and uh, we look forward to hearing a lot more from you in the future. Thank you for what you do, for what Energy Strong does. The thanks is to you, not me. Thank you. We will be right back to the Energy Strong podcast, but I want to tell you about our sponsor, SPL. They offer end-to-end -end testing, measurement and reporting solutions across the entire hydrocarbon value chain through cutting-edge technology, meticulous processes, and highly qualified personnel. SPL offers insights you can trust and act on. Check them out online at spl-inc.com. That's spl-inc.com. And now... Back to the show. 
Well, once again, we've reached the end of the Energy Strong podcast. Thank you so much for listening. As promised, we have provided links to resources that were mentioned in the interview. You can find those in the show description wherever you're listening to the podcast. I also want to say thanks once again to Andrew and Kat for recording with me. And thank you to SPL for providing all the funds to make this show possible. Don't forget to leave a rating or a review wherever you listen and share the podcast with your friends if you like what you're hearing. We look forward to seeing you all again next time.